and I for the Kenai. I'm Aaron, and I'm back today with Cobran recording another great recovery story. Today we're here with Richard. Richard, how are you today, man? I'm great. Doing great? Doing awesome. Nice. Yeah, so well, let's just uh, dive right in here. Where are you from, Richard? So... Born in Washington State, grew up there until I was uh, 16 years old, moved up here to Alaska, and I've been here ever since, so I'm, I'm 51 years old now, so I've been here a while. On, yeah, going on 35 years, I think. What brought you up? You said you were 16? <laughs> yeah, I was a senior in high school, and uh, my family decided At to 16? move up here. Yeah, I was... I was a junior, going to be a senior oh, next okay. year. Yeah, and uh, my dad, uh, we owned a few businesses in Washington. My dad owned a glass store and a Texaco station, and uh, we decided to come to Alaska for work. Uh, we lived in a logging community, and they were shutting down the woods, and so um, economics were really bad there. So we was mm -hmm. promised a job in Alaska, and we moved here. And, uh, you know, when we got here... Times were pretty tough for our family. Um, he didn't get a job right away like he was promised, and living in a tent, in a tent, in a camper, and you know. But sometimes that's good for families go through a little rough time. Yeah. So where'd you grow up in Washington? So I was born in Olympia and uh, lived in Aberdeen, and uh, lived there until I was in kindergarten. Then we moved to a town called Montesano, and I lived there until sixth grade. And then I moved from there to a place called Raymond, mm -hmm. which is down on the Olympic Peninsula. And I went to a place called Willapaw Valley High School, involved in sports, and mm -hmm. a little bit of everything there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I played Little League as a kid, and um, I was involved in Cub Scouts. Just your normal childhood, really. I mean, I mm -hmm. had a lot of opportunities as a kid, and uh, a lot of really neat experiences. Uh, my dad managed a, about a 200-acre private campground when I was a kid. In addition to running his glass business, um, we lived there. Had a like Olympic-sized swimming pool and lots oh of roads goodness. and stuff. We had dirt bikes and you mm -hmm. name it. You know, I mean, it was a, was a pretty good childhood, really. You know, mm -hmm. did a lot of berry picking and mushroom hunting and stuff like that. You know, always in the outdoors and. Yeah, I had a pretty good childhood other than, you know, uh grew up in an alcoholic home. Yeah. And so that was that was a little uh traumatic for a kid, you know. Mm -hmm. Just my dad uh was I would I would call him a binge drinker. Mm -hmm. You know, so he would go on a binge and and know when he was coming home and my mom she didn't handle that well at all. Yeah. You know, she uh puts a lot she, of tension on her yeah, family. Yeah, she didn't know how to handle his situation at all, so it would always become a confrontation, you know, mm -hmm. as, as much her as him, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I grew up grew up listening to the arguments and the fights, you know, and just right. remember being scared as a kid when where that was concerned, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I always told myself, you know, I'm never going to be an alcoholic. You know? Right. So ending up being an alcoholic and, and a... And a drug addict, um, is, is, it was a tough pill to swallow. It yeah. was a tough pill, you know. Mm -hmm. So, Did that uh, get any better coming to Alaska, or was it about the same? Well, my alcohol use didn't start until pro 
probably about a year before we came to Alaska. I had a really good friend growing up, and uh, his sister was graduating from high school, and I hadn't touched alcohol until I was, oh, I'm thinking I was 14 or 15. I was 15, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad had gotten sober um, when I was 14 years old. Um, he quit drinking and started going to AA, and uh, our life was pretty good at home after that, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen some real A changes. sense of calm. Yeah, most definitely, yeah. you know. Clouds uh, parted some, over the rocky waters a little bit. Huh? Yeah, I've seen some real positive changes in my dad, you know, and I remember just, um, <laughs> I came home one day and my dad had, had uh, went to AA and, uh, there was this guy with him in the yard, and this guy was real rough looking. He had all kinds of tattoos and stuff. And mm-hmm. I was looking at this guy, and I'm thinking, who is this guy with my dad? Because my dad didn't hang out with guys like that, you know. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm like, what's going on? And my dad's like, hey, this is my sponsor, you know. And I'm oh, like, cool. Well, what's that? Well, he's gonna help me with, you know, not drinking, and he's gonna. I'm thinking, how is this guy gonna help my dad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, you could help him out, Dad, with yeah. whatever's happening. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The guy was a painter by trade, and uh, just, uh, but it really made a difference. Just softened my dad's heart, you know. Mm-hmm. Just uh, made some real, real big changes in him. And I seen that, so I knew there was I knew there was answers in AA. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that there was solutions there. Um, we, um, I was saying when I was fourteen years old. Uh, so my friend's sister had a graduation party, mm-hmm. and uh, ended up at the graduation party. And my friend was sneaking beers from the keg and drinking them, and he kept mm-hmm. trying to encourage me. Hey, Come on, try this, try this, you know. So I, I did. I, I remember getting the red solo cup, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, <laughs> getting, but I mean, like that's a, and that's what kind of you know separates, I guess, people with like from a genetic disposition to alcoholism is like, that's socially fairly normal in air quotes. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people, fourteen, fifteen, you're hitting adolescence, like your curiosity starting to peak, like. Freshman in high school, you know, that's like, oh, you're in high school now. It's this, it's that. Like, you're allowed to party. Like, it's a like, we assume it to be like a socially acceptable part of high school, almost like a coming of age thing. It was a socially acceptable part of the community I lived in. Yeah, you know, it was a logging community and uh, mm-hmm. and farmers and and tough kids. You know, uh, right. Um, if you didn't take part in sports and and bust some heads on the football field you might as well not go to that school you know right i mean that's just the way it was and and drinking mm-hmm. was just a part of it you know yeah. i uh i avoided it for a long time and when i did try it you know it i got the most amazing feeling from it you know mm-hmm. i've lightened up i became uh entertaining uh, my friend was laughing i remember we were laughing and carrying on and i felt Probably for one of the first times in my life, kind of felt normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I I had a real awkward childhood. Didn't get along with kids, and uh, just uh, found it really hard to make friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, that lightened it up, you know. And right. but at the same time, it scared me a little bit. You know, I I didn't overindulge that time. 
Mm -hmm. um, but definitely uh, got to that spot, that sweet spot where I was feeling really good. Mm -hmm. You know, probably the only time in my life where I ever got to that sweet spot and stopped. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, we ended up moving to Alaska, like I said, and when we got here, I convinced my parents that uh, I needed to go live at the cannery in a tent. There was a campground there at the cannery because mm -hmm. um, if I was close to the cannery, I would get more work, mm -hmm. you know. And, and more freedom. And honestly, that was my intention in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And once I got there and seen all the partying going on, why well, I jumped right in. Right. You know, I was 16 years old, just got my driver's license, uh, drove my Volkswagen Bug to Alaska and uh, had it down at the cannery with me and had a tent set up there and a bunch of college kids around and so I started uh, partaking and uh, I remember the the first time I drank up here I I got severely drunk you mm -hmm. know I didn't intend to do that but it's what happened you know yeah. I started drinking the the beer and uh, and I was drinking uh, Southern Comfort whiskey I remember and uh, just got extremely intoxicated and uh, uh, behaviors came out that uh, are really embarrassing. Mm -hmm. um, I feel that. Uh, very, very embarrassing. I, I wandered through the campground uh, telling all the uh, Mexican workers that were here that they needed to go back to Mexico, that they were taking Americans' jobs, Alaskans' jobs. And my sister, she was here for the summer. She was a college student and she was trying to stop me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember being very, very embarrassed the next day, and those all them people avoiding me. Right. Know? Some very immediate consequences. Oh, immediate. Yeah. Immediate. And uh, but it didn't stop me. Mm -hmm. You know, I I would continue to drink, and well, I'm not going to get like that. Right. Yeah. What was but, I was going to ask? Like, what was the next time like? You know, so you go really like well, your first time partying in Alaska, and it sounds like when you're first time partying overall one of the first mm -hmm. occasions and right away you hit some very immediate consequences and the next time you go and like the party's starting like what do you tell yourself the second time i tell myself i'm i'm going to drink because it feels good i'm i'm at, when i get to that spot where i feel good i'm funny i get along with people i'm socially acceptable i'm i'm going to get to that spot and i'm going to i'm going to I'm gonna feel good. You know, yeah, you're gonna, gonna stay be a there. Part right? of the crowd, and I'm gonna stay there. I'm not gonna get carried away. Yeah, mm -hmm. I feel that. I think a little too spiritually, honestly, because <laughs> like the plan always sounds so easy. You know, I think that's the thing. Like when you have an addictive personality, is like logically it makes sense because you see people do it. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. not an undoable thing. Where like people, you know, they can drink responsibly. Mm -hmm. Like so people have the ability to drink responsibly, and it's like it's almost like kind of a. I don't know, I guess this is maybe me projecting, but, like, it creates almost, like, a sadness that, like, you come to realize that you might not be that, like, you might not be that kind of normal. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I'll just, mm -hmm. once I start to feel good, I'll stop. And then I start to feel good, and you feel so good, then you don't want to stop. Like, what if I had more? Yeah. Then I'll feel better. Wrong. Right? I, at some point, <laughs> yeah. you're wrong. You're so yeah. wrong, but... At some, point, at some point, the blackness I was hits. Always how you get time. there, you know how how you get to that point, you know, because you mm -hmm. don't intend to. Yeah. But it 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 ends up there, hmm. and 
I was being offered drugs at the time, and I, I avoided them. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. I'm not going to have anything to do with drugs. No marijuana, none of that. None of the other drugs that were around. And considered it a, a matter of pride for myself. You mm-hmm. know, I never touched drugs. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I never yeah. touched drugs, but I, I drank the alcohol, you know. Right, and, yeah. Uh, almost like it was acceptable. My dad had drank. Uh, the community I grew up in were drinkers, you know. I mean, lots of drinkers. Mm-hmm. And so drinking was almost acceptable, but um, drugs, definitely not. Yeah. No, I'm not going to touch that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a fairly common misconception, too, you know what I mean? Like, we're like, as you sit back with the beer in your hand, you're drinking, you know? It's like, but you'll never, but you should never do drugs. You know, yeah. when... In reality, depending on your personality and, you know, some of the things that lead up to why you're drinking, could be just as dangerous. Well, and alcohol is or literally morning. a drug, oh, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, in its own way. It is. We kind of no, put yeah. it into a different category, but... Uh, I've seen people on alcohol do a lot more uh, crazy and insane stuff and hurt people than I have, you know, smoking marijuana or, you know... Right. I've never seen anybody on marijuana kill somebody or you know what i'm saying right yeah and yeah a lot less violent behavior typically find that behavior but it's uh uh definitely um from the environment i came to work in i I see Mm -hmm. that you know right especially when it's everywhere you know Mm -hmm. it's like you have tap water you got the lemonade you got the whiskey and it's just regular addition to the house right you know and and i think at when as people become more comfortable with it, it's like yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, you know what? These maybe the thought process behind the people who were uh, out partying with you is like, well, this kid's working at a canner. He's working like an adult. He should be able to drink like an adult. Right. Like, he's doing real manual labor. You know, it's not it's not a joke in in the canneries. Right. I've definitely heard about it. And uh, yeah, I guess that mentality leads to. Um, I guess irresponsible behaviors and kind of that yeah. group. And I think that's, I mean, what that's part of what makes it so dangerous. And it may be, like you said, maybe more dangerous than a lot of, like, either other drugs or illicit substances is, you know, like, that it's so socially acceptable. Right. That it's, like, so, it's, it seems so much easier to get wrapped up in alcoholism mm-hmm. than these other things because, like, you get to a certain age, and for some parents and people, it is, like, in certain communities, like, I grew up in a similar community, like in rural Montana, where, you know, most of the kids are farming kids, you know, blue-collar working kind of people, and and it is very much part of, like, I would even say like the community fabric, you know what I mean? Like, where, like, humans are such social beings, like, where do we go to gather? Go to the bar. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where do you go mm-hmm. watch football on Sundays? The bar. You know what I mean? What do you do after your kid's football game on Friday night? You go to the bar. Like, right. high school sports drinking beer and then working hard like that's in exactly. air quotes you know like that's kind of like that becomes the fabric in a lot of part of like your identity mm-hmm. you know what i mean you kind of like separate these things like oh drugs are over here but alcohol's over here and that's okay exactly when it's really not that much different like it can still bring out some behaviors that you're not necessarily going to be proud of exactly. come tomorrow you know, I grew up watching my dad work really hard, and if I got anything from my dad, I got a work ethic from him, you know, and and uh, 
it's almost like you feel like you deserve to take that break or something. Right. You know? Yeah. Exactly. And, um, you know, working at the cannery, I, I was productive. Um, within a short time of being there, the bosses there made me a foreman even. You know, I'm a, I'm a senior in high school. I'm a foreman in the cannery mm-hmm. and running a crew and, you know, I just... Uh, partying it away when I wasn't working, you know. Uh, I remember working for days on end sometimes, you know. I, I remember being on the clock one time for three days straight as a senior in high school. They actually allowed that back then. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine that. As long right. as you could stand there and push a button, they'd allow you to work, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, so, yeah, you get to feeling like you, you deserve a break. Right. So, and, yeah, always... Always, like I say, going to stop, and as far as that level of intoxication and always going beyond that. Um, so I went to high school up here on my senior year and graduated from Kenai High School. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly after uh, graduating from high school, I became a swimming instructor and a lifeguard instructor and uh, taught kids how to swim for a while, about a, probably about a year and a half period. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I started my own business. I started a landscaping business um, cool. out of my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, my boss at the at the pool was one day just talking. She's like, "I'm putting out the landscape bids," and I'm like, "What's that?" You know? And mm-hmm. she's like, "Well, we got this guy that does the land care, lawn care around here, but he doesn't do a good job." You know? We were looking for somebody new. I'm like, "Well, can anybody bid right. on that?" You know? Yeah. She's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Well." Why don't you send one of them bid packets to, uh, and I named off the name of my company, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> right off the top of my head. You know? right. <laughs> She's like, well, who's that? I said, that's me, you know. She's like, oh, okay. So she sends me this bid packet, and I go and look up all the public information. Mm-hmm. It was all public information on how much the guy was making, so I bid like $5 less than him nice. for all the services. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's like, this is ridiculous. It, it turned mm-hmm. lucrative, though, you know. Yeah. I turned that... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and then I, then I was stuck, you know, I didn't have a big cash roll. My dad, like I said, wasn't mm-hmm. employed right away up here, you know, so he didn't, he couldn't help me out to get a tractor, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, a fireman took me and uh, put a, a Sears Craftsman tractor on his credit card for me. Whoa. The guy just had a niceness of his heart, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and so I started that business with a Craftsman tractor and a push mower and a weed eater and did all the other work by hand, the aerating and thatching and watering, everything, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, was making pretty good money doing that. And then I noticed there was a couple of schools out North Kenai, so I contacted the contractor for the borough, and I'm like, why don't you let me subcontract those from you? Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, yeah, I don't really pay me to go all the way North Kenai, you know. Mm-hmm. So then I started doing work for him, and, and we got kind of sideways, me and him. Uh, he didn't want to pay me for my work and because uh, he wasn't doing proper work at the time for the borough. And he told me he was going to withhold some of my money. And I told him, well, go ahead and keep my money, and next year I'll take them contracts from you. You know, right. I was just a kid. Yeah. You know, he's like, yeah, right, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I ended up bidding on them. I turned, you know, we turned the that landscaping business, and my little brother worked for me, and we turned that into an opportunity where we had... I don't know. At one time, we were probably making seven hundred fifty grand a year on it. You know, I mean, it was very, very lucrative. Wow. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> very, very lucrative. <laughs> and especially well, when you're nineteen and got a habit. Yeah. 
in the meantime it's a good time exactly you know i mean i'm drinking when i can I, but not not it's not an everyday occurrence you know it's mm-hmm. like uh on the weekend i might go party with friends or something you know and uh so it actually sounds like it's kind of slowing down once you kind of want to get busy when i get yeah when i get yeah. busy and staying extremely busy yeah mm-hmm. it, i didn't find time for it mm-hmm. you know um and so I'm uh, 19 years old, and I tell my dad. My dad had gotten a job in corrections. He was wor- working as a correctional officer in Anchorage at Sixth Avenue Jail, and and uh, he got transferred down to Kenai eventually within a year of being hired. And I told him, I think I'm going to apply for that job. You know, he's like, they're never going to hire you at 19 years old. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to try. I said, I'm going to go take the test and see what. So I took the test and. Ended up with an interview. I was, I was going to join the Navy. I mm-hmm. was going to join the Navy, and I had uh, really high ASVAB scores. I scored really high in mathematics and sciences, and they wanted me in uh, the nuclear power program mm-hmm. for the Navy. And, and I was going to go do that, and just a piece of me thought, you know what, they're promising me the moon, and I don't know I'm going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to apply for this state job and see what happens. Well, they ended up opening up Spring Creek Correctional Center down in Seward. It was the first maximum security prison in the state of Alaska. They brought all the all of the people who had a lot of time to do. They used to send them out to the Federal Bureau of Prisons down south. And mm-hmm. so they ended up filing a lawsuit, and they all got the right to come back to Alaska. Well, they didn't mm-hmm. have any place to hold them. Right. No maximum security prison, so they built mm-hmm. one, and they hired a whole bunch of new people. Yeah. And I actually got hired at, I had just turned 20 years old and got hired as a correctional officer. Wow. So I decided not to join the Navy, and I decided that was going to be a career for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of... Um, in that career, the camaraderie, um, people that were working in at Spring Creek, most of them lived elsewhere. They didn't live in Seward. Mm-hmm. So we'd all go down there on our weeks on, uh, work on our week on, on our week off we'd go back home, right. you know, wherever our home was. And I was still running the landscaping business in addition to doing that, mm-hmm. working in the prison. and. Uh, uh, when you're down there, I mean, there isn't much to do in Seward. Right. Um, Seward is like, the way I explained it one time, it's like a drunken Mayberry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, everybody knows everybody's business, and there's nothing to do there but drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of has that same culture, you know what I mean? Like, we're talking about, like, working hard, a lot of fishing, mm-hmm. working hard, fishing, mm-hmm. drinking. You know, mm-hmm. like... Maybe so, using some drugs. So I'm 20 years old, and I decide I'm working in a prison. I might, I should be able to go in a bar and drink, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 20 years old and doing that job. You would I think I, I, I deserve to have beers, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would, I would just go in the bars at 20 years old, risking my job. Mm-hmm. You know, had I gotten caught, I'd, I'd have been charged for minor consuming and. And uh, I'm sure my bosses at that point in my career would have fired me, you know. Wow. Just not even using my head, you know. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would go in the bar and drink, and um, 
always with the intention, like I say, I'm going to keep this under control, but always mm-hmm. getting out of control. Yeah. You know, I was smart enough back then not to drive when I was getting to that point, but down the road I did, uh, I did drink and drive eventually, you know, and uh, got away with it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, That's risky business, man. That is risky business. And uh, I should know better, you know, especially right. working in that field and uh, doing that job. There's, you know, you get started getting that uh, real disappointment with yourself. Yeah. When you're yeah. Uh, you're holding the law up and you're and you're telling, you know, you're putting on that uniform every day and going to work and and. Uh, doing something without integrity right just kind of feels hypocritical in a way exactly Mm -hmm. exactly but you couldn't afford to not to be i mean in in from your point of view it was either you don't get to have the fun that you you want to or you don't get to have the character you want to yeah 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 so you feel like you deserve these beers and and the ability to drink um but then you're also disappointing yourself. I think that's a pretty common toxic feedback loop mm-hmm. is that in addiction, you're upset that you're in addiction. And then that makes you turn to your addiction to escape that feeling of just like, I suck. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been there just with, um, with marijuana and just like, I don't feel like I can beat this. And then you hate yourself and it just, it's, it's like a downward spiral. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you know what that mm-hmm. what that's all about. You wake up in the morning, you say, "Man, I have so much things to do today, and I'm so excited to do them. I'm just gonna smoke a little bit, just get my day started." <laughs> then you next thing you know, you check your watch, and it's 9:30 p.m. And you haven't done anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And dude, then you got then you go in the yeah, then you go in the bathroom. You use the bathroom. You peek yourself in the mirror right there one time, and then you're like, oh, my God. And you just keep walking right on. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, like, I've been there. Oh, yeah. yeah. But honestly, and that creates a lot of, like, and that is a very, like, it's a toxic loop. You know, like, that's kind of just a good way to really put it, you know, like, because where else, like, a lot, and especially some of the people we talk to, and you don't really know how to cope with interpersonal things like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a lot of there's not a lot of strategy for that besides like some really hard reflection you know what right. I mean and getting some help asking for help but like like you said you're 20 I'm 20 years old yeah, yeah exactly didn't even entertain my mind really to get help at that point right you know mm-hmm. um, knew I had a problem uh, that I would get carried away right but it wasn't causing me any issues yet mm-hmm. you know I mean other than the like I was saying at the cannery, you know, and then people avoiding you, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't find myself in a lot of those situations as a young adult where people where there were a lot of consequences. Right. So when does it start? When do you start having some negative consequences in an adult setting? Um. Well, I I ended up joining the Lions Club and. Uh, I belonged to the Lions Club for about 30 years, and uh, I'd always look forward to the uh, conventions, you mm-hmm. know, and I would go to conventions, and I would, with the intention of I was going to drink, and I was going to party and have a good time, mm-hmm. and 
I don't know, it became life of the party, you know, just uh, people always wanted to be around me, always wanted me there. If I wasn't where the party was going on, they'd come seek me out, you mm-hmm. know, because I was always doing something crazy. Right. You know? The fun guy. The fun guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The fun guy at the party. And uh, that probably caused me some problems, you know, just uh, what people were probably really thinking of me the people, especially in the organization, that didn't drink and didn't partake, you know, right. or, you know, what they were thinking. But um, I did uh, move myself up through the ranks in that organization to where I served as district governor for the Lions in the state of Alaska. And, and that's scary in of itself because uh, getting in the leadership position, you tell yourself, I'm not going to get in that, I'm not going to get in that state. You know, and it's scary because right. because if you do start drinking, um, you know where it can turn. You know, right. it's gonna it's gonna be all bad. And there were a couple instances when I was governor where where I did drink too much. You know, but uh, I did kind of keep it under wraps. You know, the one thing I did have going for me was my occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably the only thing that kept me from going full tilt. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Having that occupation as a correctional officer and knowing um, I had to provide for my family. I got married at uh, 24 years old, had children at 26, um, and 28. I had two boys. Um, when I married my wife, um, she had a six-year-old son, so mm-hmm. I was raising three boys. And uh, I wanted to provide for my family, do the best I could for them. and. Uh, uh, my parents didn't want me to marry the gal I married, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course. So my alcoholic thinking was, uh, I'll show you. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And I married her anyway. Well, that caused some family problems and caused some division in our family and ended up where my brother and dad basically took control of my business, you know, of our business. Mm -hmm. I had to end up giving them a third of the business apiece because I was single and uh, we formed a corporation and um, they they basically took control of it and that really caused me some uh, problems because... uh, A little resentment maybe? Oh, big time resentment. Big time resentment. Mm-hmm. And that's a killer. You know, that's yeah. just an absolute killer. I'd have nightmares about it, and uh, I just uh, didn't know how to handle that at all. And turned to drinking a little bit more at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was unhappy in my marriage eventually after about three years. Um, my ex wife liked to lie and manipulate. And uh, lions like. That's like one of the things I grew up, you don't lie, you don't steal, mm-hmm. you know. Um, those are my dad's number two things, you know. You right. don't lie, you don't steal, mm-hmm. even though he's drinking and, and lying and, <laughs> <Right>. you know. <laughs> yeah. like a, like Maybe a, stealing, who knows. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, you know. It's right. like, a, it's like a, a, I don't know what I want to call it. Do as I say, not as I do. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> I'm trying to think where I was I going. heard something the other day, too. It was about that. Um, 
Eric and I, my, so my brother usually does these shows with us, but he's studying for his LSAT right now, right, which is a law school admission test. Right. And so his whole life is absorbed in lawyers and law and all this stuff. And so we watch TV shows. Oh, they're all about lawyers, right? And this guy's in court, and he's talking, and he goes, do as I say, not as I do. The foundation, he gets his hand moving. He goes, <laughs> the foundation of hypocrisy. And so, and honestly, it kind of caused a little bit of self-reflection. I'm like thinking about all the people that have said that to me in my life. And I'm like, would people said that unironically to you? Very, yes. Being very serious to me. <laughs> wow. Do as I say, not as I do. I'm like, well, that doesn't really make sense. And now yeah. I'm sitting there thinking like, dude, it was a weird revelation. But yeah, sorry, that was a tangent. But Well, then being unhappy in the marriage, you know, I even looked more forward to, um, the opportunities to drink that were presented right. because I could escape those feelings, mm -hmm. you know, and I learned to smash my feelings down with alcohol at that point, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and it wasn't an everyday occurrence either, you know, mm -hmm. but like when I would go off to Lions conventions or I would have, you know, free uh, on my weeks off when I'd have a weekend here or there I, and I would drink and I would get totally drunk, you know. And, mm -hmm. I used to like to sing karaoke, thought I was pretty good at it. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> <Yeah>. But uh, God, if I this guy sings beer for my horses one more time, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I would go to the... Uh, go to the local karaoke bar and sing karaoke and carry on and I would do that on my weeks off, and uh, it got to become kind of common practice. Even before I got married, I would go mm -hmm. over there and uh, sing karaoke, and that's uh, where I met my first wife, was actually singing karaoke. And uh, She must have liked beer for my horses. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Moni, Moni. <laughs> anyway, um, just... Uh, I was married to my ex for 18 years, 15 of it, pretty unhappy. Mm -hmm. And staying in the marriage because I'm, you know, I was thinking I was doing the best thing for my children mm -hmm. and providing for them. And, and uh, eventually just got to the point where I was basically living on the couch, you know. Yeah. Um, not sleeping in the same room and ended up telling her that, you know, if things didn't change, uh, honestly, I think she's like, has borderline personality disorder, you know, not blaming my drinking on her at all, but it's like all my personal relationships she would destroy. She would do sneaky stuff to try to um, manipulate, like even my family relationships to where I wouldn't have, she kind of control my time with her, you know, mm -hmm. and chase everybody else off. And so it was uh, pretty sad, you mm -hmm. know, that I, and, and the only way I knew how to deal with the feelings was to drink. Right. And uh, So a combination of a pretty toxic relationship and a real lack of, of coping skills. Of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Ended up getting in a real bad car wreck in uh, uh, 2000 and I don't even remember the exact date. I have problems with timelines. Um, 2008. 
and uh, I was down in Seattle. I'd taken my nephew down there to see his sister graduate from high school, and I got hit by a motorhome going. They were going 68 miles an hour, and I was almost stopped for a wreck that happened on the freeway, and mm -hmm. they ran over me from behind with that motorhome, never got it off cruise control. Dang. Ended up really messing up my back, broke my back in a couple of places, and uh, I've got some real, even still lingering, uh, very bad stenosis in my back and uh, disc, disc problems. And, mm -hmm. uh, stenosis like uh, nerve pain? Or yeah. I'm, I'm not yeah, yeah. Okay. So the, the uh, calcification in my spine is pinching my nerves off that go down my legs. Oh, yeah. you know, so. oh wow. Okay. And uh, so I ended up on pain medication <laughs> and got addicted to pain meds really bad. I mean, I would get to where it wasn't controlling my pain and the doctor would just give me more and more. And uh, one doctor at the time told me, well, you're just habituated, you know, because eventually after about three years of this, I had had enough and I told him, I'm just, I told my ex-wife, I said, I'm just going to go in the bedroom, lock the door, don't let my kids in there and I'm going to get off these things because I am just lethargic, you know, mm -hmm, and mm. was uh, terrible, of, uh, tired of living that way. Um, um, never abused my prescriptions at that time, but just it got more and more and more. You right. know, the doctor just kept giving me more and more mm -hmm. and more. The doctor Another was my drug user, basically, days, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I heard a song like that recently about a doctor being a drug dealer. I'm like, yeah, exactly. You know, it's mm -hmm. like you know, legalized dr drugs. You know, and uh, and the whole time, you know, I'm uh, I'm keeping my job in the prison. You know, mm -hmm. and taking narcotic medication. And uh, I'm sure people seen the difference in my in my behaviors. You mm -hmm. know, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you said you're not really using it to manage pain anymore, right? Like, um, I mean, did you still have I was like pretty using, severe I was pain? still having pain, and I still have pain today. But it just got carried away. It got mm -hmm. to where I was addicted to them. Yeah. yeah, it was more probably more addiction than it was pain management at that mm -hmm. point, you know. And uh, so when I went in the bedroom after about two days, it being in the bedroom. Um, I just came out and said, I got to go to the hospital. It was, uh, I think my blood pressure was like, I don't remember, like 190 over 140. I mean, it was like screaming yeah. up there, you know, it was like mm -hmm. terrible. Mm -hmm. And doctor uh, said, what did you do to yourself? No, you can't do that, you know, but he, he gave me uh, some meds to drop my blood pressure and right. to... Uh, manage that and some because uh, you're in a pretty serious withdrawal at this point oh i yeah. did yeah i went through and i uh, got off the pain medications and uh, uh but still drinking mm -hmm. from time to time and uh um, ended up going through the, a divorce with my ex-wife yeah. uh, she decided to get a boyfriend and and uh our marriage came to an end mm -hmm. and uh, that was a pretty uh, traumatic time in my life mm -hmm. um, not having contact with my children uh, my ex would go file for restraining order so I couldn't 
I couldn't have contact with my kids and uh, after every day uh, being in their lives, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the judge would grant a restraining order for two weeks and then I'd go for a long-term hearing and they would deny it because there's no proof that I'm abusive to my kids right. or my ex-wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, just... It was insane. I think there was like 30 protection orders filed for within the period of this divorce. Oh, mm -hmm. keeping my kids away from me, you know. And uh, and my drinking got pretty bad at that time. You know, yeah. I would just chase the feelings away with alcohol. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, so how old are you at this point now? When all this is starting? It seems like we're getting ready to come to a head here. Like everything's... That was in uh, 2011 when that happened. That mm -hmm. happened in 2011. Okay. It started getting started getting bad. Mm -hmm. And uh, met my new wife in 2012 while I was drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, we met, and um, she was an alcoholic too. And we decided that we were going to quit drinking. So we quit drinking for a period of about three years. So we didn't touch any alcohol at all, mm -hmm. and uh, um, just managing on self well, mm -hmm. you know. And one night, just the most peculiar thing, I just call it a peculiar mental twist. My brain tries to tell me it's okay to drink alcohol, mm -hmm. you know. And so we're making uh, tamales and rolling them up at Christmas time, and she goes, it would be nice to have white wine with the tamales. And, yeah, that would be, you know. So she went and got white wine, and we had tamales and white wine. Well, within a week, it's it's vodka and it's everything else, you know. Mm -hmm. And then right back to where we started, you know. And, yeah. And uh, it's insanity you're, that your mind will tell you oh, that you can control it, even when you have all this experience that tells you, no, you can't control it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Still experiencing pain at that time. I got to a point where I couldn't sleep at night, um, just from the pain in my back, and uh, went out and even bought a ten thousand dollar bed to sleep in. Wow. Uh, one of these hydraulic beds mm -hmm. with uh, each side will raise or lower and uh, different pressures, whatever you know. And, right. and even that wasn't controlling it to where I could get some sleep. So I went back and seen another doctor, got back on pain medication again, and that just got way out of control. My wife got on the pain medications. For, she ended up blowing out her Achilles uh, uh, tendon mm -hmm. and had to have surgery on that and ended up on pain meds. So then we're both drinking, doing pain meds, um, and out of control. I ended up, I ended up retiring from corrections um, and I was drinking pretty heavily when I retired. Mm -hmm. um, felt like my work was starting to suffer. Right. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. You know, mm -hmm. I just was, I was ready to call it quits. I was pretty embarrassed about my situation. You mm -hmm. know, people didn't know at, at the job exactly right. how bad my situation was with with the pain medications and mm -hmm. the drinking. And uh, ended up, uh, before I retired, I ended up uh, getting stopped one night for um, driving while intoxicated. I had ran a uh, red light and 
I ended up getting arrested and taken to jail where I worked mm -hmm. for DUI and ended up getting a uh, reckless driving uh, conviction out of it. Mm -hmm. um, I was right on the border of a point oh eight, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm surprised I wasn't more intoxicated than that, right. you know, but I was only right at the, at the legal limit. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like I was more intoxicated than that, but. So you said <coughs> in um, 2012, you met your, your other wife. Um, mm -hmm. So how old were you then? So I was born in 68. 68. Um, so like 30s, right? No, 40s. No. In my 40s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so then you're sober for three years. Yeah, yeah. So and then you hit, so this is about 2015 then mm -hmm. when you're picking back up. And by then you're late 40s yeah so this all it's just you know because obviously we see people that hit that point at different times throughout their lives you know what i mean it's just mm -hmm. it's more of a unique story in the fact that like things aren't like your whole you're maintaining the job like you get sober for a point of time kind of on your own like you're doing your thing until about almost 50 mm -hmm. really and so then Okay, so yeah, it's just it's interesting. Yeah, I, I find it interesting that originally it started self-destructing at the time that I got the divorce. You know, I yeah. Mean, in two thousand eleven, I it started self as far as my addiction, it got pretty bad. You mm -hmm. know? So yeah, what's it look like day to day in twenty eleven? Like, um, are you drinking every day at this point, or is it still oh, kind of yeah. on the week? Yeah. Oh yeah. Every day. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, well. Yeah, pretty much every day, mm -hmm. 2011, 2012. Yeah. I found, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I found it interesting that originally when you, um, when you met uh, your new wife in 2011, right, mm -hmm. or 12? 12. 12. 12. Yeah. Yeah, that you guys kind of had this, uh, this peer support system kind of a little bit mm -hmm. within yourselves. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, we're not going to do this. But then as one of you fell off, the other kind of followed, exactly. and then they fell off. And so it, it's almost that working together, kind of falling together. And that's, then, our, that's our history. Yeah. We will go through a period of, uh, of being uh, sober, and then one of us will fall off, and the other one will go behind them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, all it takes is that one little suggestion. Because exactly. you're both thinking it, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So, our, our, our minds are both working the same, telling us it's okay. That you, yeah. You, you can drink one, you know, and yeah. we both have the same problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah so that's our, our typical is, is one of us falling off and then the other one following behind. And that became a, a pattern for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that continued... Uh, pretty heavily the last couple of years mm -hmm. and uh, we would go through periods of where we wouldn't drink and then one of us would fall off the other one would join and and uh, uh, last time we started was about uh, probably it was probably about a six month period maybe a little longer than that uh, prior to us going to uh, um, one thing that did happen was, in the meantime, I decided to quit taking opiates again, mm -hmm. and I got on a Suboxone program mm -hmm. um, through local 
doctor, and that happened um, over, uh, let's see, it would have been not this last February, but the February before. Mm-hmm. So I was on the Suboxone program and quit taking opiates, and that was going good. But I continued to drink, even though they warn you. Um, right. Hey, look, uh, if you drink with taking Suboxone, you can kill yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. But my mind tells me, oh, they just say that. Right. You know, that, that's not the, the case. They say know? it to appease the they lawyers. And, and so, <laughs> yeah. you know, my, my brain will tell me anything. Oh, yeah. To, to go pick up an al- a drink, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, I continued to drink while on Suboxone. I would, I would stop the night before I would go see the doctor, go into the doctor's office with the shakes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, get my Suboxone medication for the week, get to go through the thing, and then as soon as I got out of the appointment, be hitting a drink of vodka to stop me from having the, the shakes, you know. Mm-hmm. It was getting to that point, and so very, very, very serious, you know, causing myself, my body to eat itself from the inside out, you know, drinking and and doing the suboxone at the same time, and got to the point where uh, sleeping maybe an hour every couple of days, uh, afraid if I went to sleep I was going to die, you know. Wow. Pretty serious stuff. That's got to be some serious anxiety, too, along with that. Very, very serious going on. Very serious anxiety. And, um... What's your relationship with your kids look like at this point? Um, I've always had a pretty decent relationship with my boys. Mm -hmm. Um, always tried to hide it from them. They knew what was going on because there was important things that happened that I missed, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, one of my boys helped form a Lions Club, and they had a charter night for that, and I missed it. Mm-hmm. And it was because I was intoxicated and drunk and wasn't going to show my face there, you know. And mm-hmm. That's embarrassing. That's yeah. embarrassing. I have to tell them you're sick or something that mm-hmm. isn't true, you know. And, and then maybe they know, too, so they're like, okay, Dad. And exactly. Like, uh, that's exactly. got to hurt internally. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, or missing family birthday parties or different things like that. You know, just making excuses to hide from people, mm-hmm. secluding, right. you know. Mm-hmm. So are you getting even more separated from, you know, potential supports or, or people that you Ex- talk to regularly? You're just kind of closing Ex- in. Exactly. It was just me and my wife, you know. Yeah. And, and finally come to the realization that we're killing ourselves, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd actually been to the hospital once with uh, what I thought was heart issues, and the doctor worked me up, and he came in there and said, you need to stop drinking. If you don't stop drinking, you're going to kill yourself, mm-hmm. you know. And so I quit for a period and uh, started searching on the Internet. This is my alcoholic brain at work. I started mm-hmm. searching on the Internet how to, how to make my liver better, and I started reading about chaga. So chaga is a fungus that grows on a birch tree, and it's mm. the highest uh, antioxidant known to man. Basically, you go out and you take the part off the birch tree, you grind it up, you make tea out of it, you drink it. Well, after a couple of months, my blood work was looking whole, whole lot better. Wow! Right? Yeah. So, Interesting. So, 
what's my alcoholic brain tell me? It tells me that I'm good to go if, now. If I can just drink the chaga, I can drink the vodka with the chaga, and Chaser. everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah. but everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> to the to the rationalization part. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I I've been there. Like, yeah. It's Lick just one time. Yeah, but then uh, there's a story in the AA book about a guy who uh, uh, decides he can mix his he can mix his uh, whiskey with milk, and as long as he mixes it with milk, it's okay because he won't get intoxicated. And we think that's far fetched when you first read something like that. You think, how oh, that? Come on, that can't be right. But when you compare it to what I did, mm-hmm. you know, it ain't too far fetched, right? You know. Basically, what that tells me is that I have a mental illness. Mm-hmm. You right. Know? And just the way we can rationalize things. You know what I mean? As human beings in general, you know, like, it sounds like, oh, that sounds so wild. But, like, I mean, a lot of people rationalize a lot of things, either do things they want to do or have things they want to have. And, like, when you hear them off, like, just off the tip, like, yeah, that sounds really crazy. Yeah. You know, it sounds pretty abnormal, but... Do we do it every day? Right. Plus, you, know? you got to understand that 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 addiction muscle has been built up. Like it wants to flex. It wants what it wants, mm-hmm. and it's been getting stronger all this time. So now it takes even more effort than, um, you know, just starting at the beginning and saying, Definitely. no, it's like uh, becomes that need that we talk about. You were saying it's mental illness. I think it's like a mental priority mm-hmm. that that is super hard to change. Like. It's basically what you're saying. It is. It is a disease. You know, addiction is, and so it's. It, you can go to some pretty illogical places in the rationalization right. realm. At that point in my life, I don't believe that alcoholism is a disease. Mm-hmm. I believe it's a weakness. At that oh, point, yeah. at oh, that point, I still believe life, I'm just a yeah, weak individual. Yeah, right. Ooh, so you're kind I'm of producing weak. some shame within yourself. Exactly. Too, yeah. Oh, the shame circle is, is this spiral like you talked about. Mm-hmm. Dude, I, that I toxic don't... circle, dude, is like, because like we were talking about, you know, in that toxic circle, you find all the like the shame and the guilt and all these other like emotions that just kind of drive you back to your only real coping mechanism, which is your drinking or your right. drug use or your addiction, whatever that is. And dude, that thing's just like a carousel, man, because they're like shame. Yep, center on guilt. Send her on. Self-loathing. Yep, got it. Send her on. Yeah. Next thing you know, man, you're just spinning your wheels, really not going anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, my wife and I decided after the second time I end up in the hospital that it's time that we quit or we're going to kill ourselves. I mm-hmm. mean, my wife was at a point where she was in the hospital four or five times, you know, and the last time wasn't looking good at all, you know, yeah. and we're like, we have to stop. Mm. You know, got to quit. So we come up with a plan to, um, she's going to go into care transitions mm-hmm. and get some help with uh, detoxing. And then when she's done there, I'm going to go in. Mm-hmm. And she had had some treatment through Serenity in the past. And so um, once she got done there, um, well, when I dropped her off to get treatment, I decide that I got five days before I have to go in there, so what's the first thing I do is go get a bottle, right? All right. And so I go get a bottle and drink it, and um, the very first night she was in there, um, 
I end up in the ditch in my car. First time I've ever been in a ditch in my car, and I was severely intoxicated. And I just thought, I need help, you mm-hmm. know. And it just was like at that point in my life where I'm like, God, I need help, you know. Mm-hmm. You cry out. Eventually you get to that point where you cry out for something to help you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sat in my car for about, the middle of winter, I sat there for about two and a half hours in my car before the trooper showed up. Mm-hmm. I knew where I, I knew I was going to end up in jail, but I could have walked away. I could have walked home. I could have did all kinds of. Mm-hmm. But I sat there and waited, and uh, ended up uh, took me to Wildwood, and I got a DUI. And uh, you know, you started like I was talking about before about doing that occupation for twenty five years and integrity being so important, and here you are breaking it. You know. Yeah. It's tough. That's uh, that's a hard thing to swallow. Yeah. So. Yeah, once reality really kicks you in the face, it's like I'm I'm not going to be ignored anymore, and you have to accept it. Then it's it's kind of all at once. As you're pushing back those feelings, pushing back these these warning lights, basically, and all of a sudden you check on it, and it's it's terrifying, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. You know, you're at a point where you're out driving around the car to kill someone, you know? Yeah. Paranoid, you know, looking in your rearview mirror, every car you see you think is a cop, so you're going to go down a different road, you're going to do... I mean, just insane, just insanity. Mm-hmm. Just plain insanity. And uh, so I ended up in care transitions after my wife and uh, made the decision while I was in there that I was going to go to Serenity House and get treatment. Mm-hmm. So I uh, went into the treatment center, and the first thing out of my mouth when I got there was, uh, this ain't a disease. It's I'm a, I'm a weak person. This is not a disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always had that uh, thought, you know, just all I need to do is just say no, you know. That's what Nancy Reagan said. You know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> 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 It ain't quite that easy. Yeah, it's not quite that easy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thank God for care transitions. You know, those people are uh, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, if a person uh, is really serious about wanting help and wanting to stop drinking, and uh, uh, I would suggest that place to anybody to go for medical for medically assisted withdrawal, mm-hmm. you know. Um, people care about you, and Dr. Walachek over there, or PA Walachek, he's, uh, he was a godsend to me, man. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, he's one of our favorites too, actually. That dude right there, I have nothing but good to say about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, tremendous, tremendous help for me. And uh, uh, when I ended up in Serenity House, I really started learning about addiction. Never mm-hmm. had really stopped to study it, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, never wanted to look at myself. Always so busy looking at other people or telling other people things, you know. Like when I worked in the prison, uh, people would come in for DUI and I'd be consoling, you know, a little bit of this ain't the end of the world, you know, you can 
you can recover from this and you just need to get a handle on your problem you know so I'm telling these people this you know the whole time before they leave I'm telling them you know uh, what you need to do is get a car and pull it up in your driveway an old car that has no no wheels and oh so I can't drive it no no that's not it that's not it just I said the driver's door needs to work and how come the driver's door? Well, that's the only thing that needs to work is just the driver's door. Anyway, you only need to have seats in it, really, because you're never going to sit in it. So when you get that feeling of uh, you, that you want to go drink, I said, you just go walk out there and open up the car door and stick your head in there and start slamming it on it until the feeling goes away. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of like mm-hmm. pain, you know, pain, uh, pain compliance, you know, um, you get a little pain, you're going to comply, but it ain't that easy either, you know, mm-hmm. it's, that's just me wanting to solve somebody else's problems and not my own, not right. look at my own problem, you know, uh, so yeah. that's, uh, that's where I was at in life, and uh, I'm sure you guys have heard the, the, the good thing about getting sober is you get your feelings back. The bad mm-hmm. thing is you get your feelings back. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. I sat there and had emotion after emotion in Serenity House, you know, having to deal with the emotions of getting sober, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, It's pretty, it's it's work, but it's well worth it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was, what was your experience with that? Because, like, a th- general theme of, what we've been talking about today is you suppressing, you know, kind of a lot of those emotions with your drinking. So, like, when when all that's coming back to the surface, what's your experience like with that? Um, pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Pretty overwhelming. And never have really dealt with, with any of my own issues, you know. Never took time to work on me, ever. Right. So... You build these little bonds with people as you're going into treatment, and one of them I carried over from care transition, the person that was there with me, both decided to get treatment, you know, and mm-hmm. so we both end up there, and uh, within a couple of days, he's getting kicked out of the place, you know, and I get irate, mm-hmm. you know, I get mad, because um, to me, what's on the other side of that place if you go back out to death, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm throwing dishes in the sink. I'm supposed to be washing the dishes, and I'm throwing them around, and the counselor's like, what's, what's wrong with you? You're kicking him out. You don't need to be kicked out. So she's telling me, you like to solve other people's problems. I noticed since you got here, you like to solve everybody else's problem, but not your own problems. And I'm bawling, you know? And she's like, do you save any tears for yourself? Wow. I go downstairs, I'm packing my crap, I'm going to leave, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? You're packing your crap, you're going to leave, you're... No, unpack my stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's, that's right. what's going through my head the first yeah. couple of days there, you know. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things that... Uh, lots and lots of emotions. Mm. You know, and not knowing how to handle them and how to deal with them. Right. So, pretty intense. Yeah. Like one of our favorite quotes is, "It's not all sunshine and rainbows." You know, it's, it's healing, and it's worth it. Yeah. Man, it's hard. It very, is hard very work. hard. It is hard Difficult work. stuff, but just 
feel like when you come out on the other side of it, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, it's like the first time putting on glasses when you've been wearing blinders. You know, right. like the world just kind of right. like opens up wide. Like, you know, you take for granted the sky is blue, but then you walk out of there and you're like, holy, the sky is blue, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm there. I'm not getting a whole lot, you know, the first few days. Here in comes one of these people that's going to, going to tell us about AA step work, you know, and first words out of his mouth are basically like, what your family's doing at home is none of your effing business, and what your this is doing, what your wife's doing is none of your effing business. And I'm thinking, man alive, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Now this is so crazy. Mm-hmm. They got this guy coming in here cussing and I'm like, this is totally unprofessional. You know, that's what I'm thinking. I hate right. this guy. I hate him right away. <laughs> you know, I hate him. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm telling him, tell him, man, that guy is so messed up. Why do they have that guy coming in here? Mm-hmm. Until the light bulb clicks, you know, and you realize that all this time you've been manipulating situations and, and people in your life to get what you want because you're selfish and self-centered. And you don't realize that when you're in that without looking at it. Right. You know, you don't realize how selfish and self-centered you are. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And when it finally clicks, when the light bulb clicks, you're like, ah, yeah, it's not everybody else in the world, it's me. Mm. You know? <laughs> it's like... Yeah. Right. I think that's like when you're in the throes of addiction and you have to feed that that it kind of becomes, you have to be the priority. Because if mm-hmm. you don't have what's keeping you going, well, everything just is miserable for you. So right. you, you have to figure out a way to fit that into everything. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that that's kind of a habit that would be built up, is that, all right, I'll take care of me first, and then we can do whatever it is that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So I know you Maybe. Talk- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you've Maybe. talked about, uh, Aaron, you've talked about how just because you overcome an addiction to something or, or something you struggle with, your your regular problems don't go away. You know, it, that's just the first level. Yeah. But it sounds like with what you went through um, that you had people to kind of help guide you through that, that readjustment to this isn't how the world is going to work anymore. Well, how am I going to make it work? My structure's gone. That doesn't work. So you have to have something to replace it. So it sounds like that was more of a smooth transition than trying to figure everything out again on your own versus that kind of support right yeah it definitely has been a a great support network uh the whole the whole organization with serenity house all the way i like the way that they have their uh, program set up with care transitions and then they have the the house and they have the outpatient treatment here mm-hmm. as well as uh, Diamond Willow which is where I'm staying right now right. you know um, so I own a home or a mobile home in Nikiski with some property and a shop and uh, and uh, while I'm getting ready to get out of Serenity House I'm doing a relapse pre- prevention pro, uh, uh, plan mm-hmm. and things that are on there are like um, my wife and I follow on each other in relapse, like I talked about. Mm-hmm. Transportation's an issue. Right. Um, I have to get to classes, that's an issue. And so I'm looking at this thing and I'm just thinking, it was like 
being directed uh, directed by praying about it and directed by God that I need to go over to Diamond Willow and live there. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, well, what's up with that? You know, and then I start evaluating how that can alleviate some of those things in the relapse prevention, and I'm like, there's a strong network of people there that are sober right now. Mm-hmm. My wife and I, who knows if I'll fall off or if she would, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and one of us would follow the other one like our habit has been the whole time. Uh, so I made a decision to go over there and live out of Diamond Willow until such that our our recovery mm-hmm. was in a position where we can come back and live together, right. and, you know, and in healthy because... I mean, just one person recovering is, is hard enough. You put two, and the odds that two people get uh, sober, you know, are astronomical, mm-hmm. you know. They say eight, eight out of ten people that go through um, treatment, I think, relapse within the first year. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, a lot of our stories, there's very rare where it's like, yeah, I went once, got her kicked, and I've been sober 50 years now. Right. You know, it's... right. And sadly, I mean, it's and it's not that it's like an expected farm because people do it, you know, and it's like, and that's the goal, you know, like the goal is not to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to come out and I'll probably relapse and then I'll be back. Like there has to be kind of this balance, you know, between like, obviously the goal is to remain sober for the, for the length of it, you know, for the long haul. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that it's an everyday battle. Yeah. You know, it's an everyday, conscious, thought, difficult thing to do. Yeah, I hope people that realize that do relapse, so, you know, that, uh, for no better word, getting back on the horse is, uh, you know, save your life, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't be so proud and so um, thinking that people are going to be looking at you funny because you've relapsed to not get back in there, you know, because mm-hmm. wor- people are worth it, you know. All right. And uh, what I've seen in the in the rooms of recovery is that they don't shoot their wounded, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. They accept them with open arms and and right. uh, understand because they've been there. Right. You know. Yeah. So if there's yeah. anyone listening out there who's ashamed of having fallen off the wagon or or they feel like everyone's given up on them, you're wrong. You're just wrong, and there is a there's a place you can go, and the people there are, they have open arms more or less, and the, mm-hmm. they'll take care of you. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. I I find that to be my um, major purpose in life right now is to fit myself to be of maximum service to other people. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm seven months over and. Uh, just uh, was asked to be a sponsor for somebody who's um, cool. younger in recovery than me and uh, help them through the steps. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's going to be something that's important in my life. I think helping others and uh, uh, being actively participating in helping other people achieve sobriety will be something that will help keep me sober. Right. Definitely. All right. Thank, thank you so much, Richard, for coming and telling your story with us today. It was really fun to hear. Mm-hmm. This, you know, everybody's story. Like we, I feel like we leave here with a little bit, 
obviously as you add more things on in this experience for us, you know, because we started doing this just like over a year ago, like the way like my, at least my perspective has progressed, you know what I mean? With everybody's story, you just kind of get like, it's just a new like appreciation for people in general, you know what I mean? Like people that struggle, people that don't, and just people, you know, because kind of realizing that like, like you said, like the world exists outside of you. You yeah. know what I mean? And like, I feel like in our everyday lives, we kind of get caught up in that sometimes. You know what I mean? Like in our stuff and what we're doing. And like, you know, we heard from, I think it was somebody else we had a podcast with a long time ago. It was like, everybody could take some time to do this 12, the 12 steps and be totally okay. That was Zach. He literally said, some people, I wish they would get a problem so they could work the steps and fix themselves. <laughs> right. Like, there's something I, I would like to throw out there, and it's that there is there is people in my occupation and in uh, law enforcement type careers that have an issue mm-hmm. that are afraid to look at it for fear of what it might do to them uh, professionally. Mm-hmm. I would just tell them that it's uh, it's different than what you might perceive it to be to go get get help. Right. You know, um, I was afraid of going to get help when I was Mm -hmm. in that career for fear of who I might see in an AA room or, and, uh, today I don't care who knows that I'm an alcoholic Mm -hmm. because, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I see it totally different than I did from the other side. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Hmm. yeah, definitely. I think that's a, that's crucial when you get into occupations like that, that are, you know, the tough guys, you know, the guys that don't really have problems. These are the problem solvers. You know, these are people we call for help. I get called for help. I don't call for help kind of guys, you know. Exactly. Or at least expectation of those people, at least from a social perspective. But mm-hmm. And yeah. it's it's funny that by being open about those insecurities, it kind of frees you from them. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't yeah. control you anymore. Huge you know? step. Because you're not, you're not beating, you're not fighting yourself and the, the disease of addiction. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. Thank you so much, Thanks, Richard. Guys. This <laughs> was Aaron and Coburn. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. appreciate you, man. This is you and I for the keynote.